0: The line of reaching to such as these, yet also being careful not to become companions with these people. What if that seems to be a requirement to reach out to such people that we hang out with them? Um, And then Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was a companion of the sick that needed healing, and yet the there are tons of proverbs about a companion of fools coming to ruin. Could you address the balance? and what this might look like today. So there were three, three or That's four you. other people. I've got the mic here.
1: Yeah, got um, yeah I'd start with First Peter chapter 3. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's where it starts. Who's the boss of you? Who's in charge? Who's the king? Now, let me, let's think about missions. We, we would send missionaries to a foreign land, to a hostile land, to a pagan land, to an idolatrous place to go into these hostile territories to take the gospel. Would you send your 8-year-old? Of course not. That would be dangerous. would Never send an 8-year-old into that. I don't, they're not ready. So parents, the first thing you have to do is get your children ready, and that's why we put them in, in places and make sure that what they read and what they're taught and who their friends are and where they go to church and all those things. This, the hothouse is a beautiful metaphor, but the hothouse is not the end game. If you've done what you need to do there, There comes a place, if you do any gardening, you know this, if you've grown plants indoors and getting them ready from sprouts, you can't just take them out and throw them out in the weather. Uh, It'll either be too hot or too windy or too cold and they'll perish. You harden them off. You take them out for a few hours and you bring them back in and there's a process to get them ready to go out and be fruitful. That's our jobs in raising our children, is to bring them to the place of maturity so that they can stand, so they can go have coffee with an unbelieving friend because, number one, they not only know that Jesus is their Lord, that person they're having coffee with already knows that. Uh, They're already uh, in a position to do that work uh, because the boundaries have been clearly identified in themselves. Everybody who knows them knows that about them, and even this unbelieving friend Again, companion, not, this is not the same thing as the person you just hang out with on a Friday night, but these are. this is another context, and wisdom would know the difference, right? If you're hanging out with a group of Christian friends, what are you going to be talking about? What are you going to be doing? What kinds of behavior is going to be going on? What kind of vocabulary? There's nothing to worry about there. If you say, I'm going to go meet with some friends on campus to do some evangelism, uh, And maybe that means one night you go talk about football and you get to be friends and you invest in them, but you have as the end game uh, talking to them about Christ. So that's where I would make... The key thing is sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. If that's clear, you can safely move out.
0: Thank you. Uh, What about people who are in friendships, they're in have Christian friends, a group of guys or gals that hang out together. You wouldn't say you need different friends because these are bad examples, but at the same time they're not exhorting one another and pushing one another toward maturity. They're just kind of you know, floating and stagnant. Um, what, what kind of advice would you give to those situations?
1: Well, one virtue that we don't maybe talk about enough I think is courage. Uh, to be a Christian takes Courage. And so sometimes the place that that first shows up is among your Christian friends. Everybody's used to hanging out. Maybe they're not doing awful things, but kind of slipping here and there. But what if you began to, and I started emphasizing this with our young people, and and it thrilled my heart to see some of them actually start to do it. And I could talk about maybe how to implement this. Uh, let Let me back up a little bit. Everything, the first time you do something new, it always feels weird. You do it. What's, the, what's the way to get over that? Just do it. Do it some more, and then it's not new anymore. So when's the last time you prayed with your friends? I'm not talking about at church. I'm not talking about a prayer meeting. I'm talking about you're at your friend's house, or you're with two or three friends, and you're talking about something, a problem. And it, did somebody say, well, let's pray about it. Let's just uh, take a minute, and let's ask the Lord to help us for this. Instead of us just talking about it as though we're going to figure all this out, what if you broke the ice and you began to be a leader and you set the bar there and said, so yeah, I'm not talking about a long prayer meeting. I'm not talking about anything like that. Just a short prayer. Lord, would you help us? We need some wisdom here as we talk about how to handle this situation with our other friend that we're concerned about. And amen. And then you talk about it. So you bring the Lord into cultivating an awareness of his presence with your friends. Same thing in a marriage, right? If husbands and wives do that, then there's an awareness of God's presence that it's not just the two of us. It's not just our family. God's here. And so bringing God into that circle of friends, remember Abraham walked with God. He was the friend of God. So your closest friend should be Christ. Don't leave him out of your other circle of friends. Bring him in. I think that would be one way I would help to
0: move the conversation up a notch or two. Thank you. How do you juxtapose the need for maturity and the call to childlike faith? Christ often referenced children as making up the kingdom of heaven. Are we called to be childlike and mature? Yes. Think about
1: an older person Who's, who you think of, a mature person, a mature Christian, who also is very able to interact and engage with little children. That's part of the maturity, right? What if they have, I don't like children, I don't want to be around children, children annoy me. Uh, I don't. That's a selfish person, right? That's not a mature person. But that person who can get out on the floor and play with them and interact with them, you know, I want to see, uh, you know, I, I tell pastors all the time, Give a you know, secret here. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Pastor Sexton does this already, but if you if you love people's children, they'll love you even if you're not always that great. Uh, if you they know you love them and you love their children, um, so you interact with kids, you play with them, you delight in them. They're gifts from God. They're little images of God. Um, you know, one of the one of my favorite writers uh, is G.K. Chesterton, uh, who never had children of his own. He and his wife couldn't have children, but he was—they they called him the giant elf. I think he was like six four and over 300 pounds, uh, and he wore a cape. And he always carried a, a cane that he used like a sword when he was playing around. But he loved children, and he had that ability to remember that part of—that's how, like I read that the quote there. Uh, from Lewis about, uh, I mean from Chesterton, about us growing old but forgetting the joys of delights that a child has. So I think it's both.
0: What is the balance between the focus you should place on friendships with Christians within your congregation and Christians with whom you are friends who are in a different congregation?
1: I think that's going to vary with your individual situation a lot. Um, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. We, we need to be uh, very much engaged, obviously, with our own congregation and be close. This is our family. This is where we are. This is where we spend time with one another on a regular basis. But everybody's circumstances are a bit different. Uh, God has many people in this place. They're his people, which means they're your people. And maybe think of it like this: if you if you if you have a, your family, your nuclear family, and your brothers and sisters, you should love them and interact with them. But if you have next door neighbors and there are kids there, and and you have, you're to love your neighbor, right? So you go play with them too, and you interact with them. But but now at your house, you all have the same rules y'all have a, you have the same mom and dad you have the same system the next door neighbors might be a little different you ever have a child come home and say well can i do such and such no well johnny gets to do it they let him do it and what do you say well that's johnny's family this is our family so there will be differences and distinctions between you know what you believe versus what a christian that may go to another church believes there will be differences but that doesn't mean there's not great fellowship and affection and things you do with one another. In fact, I would encourage you to do more of that, uh, not less of that. But those are, not, those are different circles, and those circles should overlap, I guess is how I would put it. Very good.
0: Does the media that is read, listened to, watched fall under the category of companions we keep and that can drag us down?
1: Yeah, Uh, anything, it doesn't just have to be a person, obviously, anything that's influencing what you think. Ideas have consequences. Uh, uh, Ephesians 4, when it talked about no longer being children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the craftiness and deceitful scheming, that's not just individual hucksters who come along uh, doing the shell game but those can show up on television or in books or any other. There's all kinds of ways now to communicate. Uh, the nature of man hasn't changed, just our ability to communicate. So the Internet, for example, just becomes this giant megaphone to spread these things more quickly into larger numbers of people. But uh, here's something to remember, and I'm, uh, this may be, may be in one of my talks later, so if I repeat myself, uh, I apologize, but uh, everybody... Everybody is trying to sell you something. Now, maybe what they're selling you is great. Uh, you know, I like think what your pastor is selling you is great. He's selling you the Word of God. By selling, I mean, he's trying to get you to take it. He's trying to get you to em- embrace it. But so is everybody else. And what happens, and again, this may show up later. I'll, I'll just repeat it if we do because I think it's an important lesson. If you go to the grocery store with your three-year-old and you're going down the cereal aisle, Do you think it's an accident that General Mills has tricks are for kids placed at eye level for a three-year-old? Okay. General Mills knows what they're doing. You know what they're doing. I hope you do. Does the three-year-old know what they're doing? He's got the box in the basket ready to go. Check out. Tricks are for kids and there's a toy inside. And it's covered in sugar. What's not to like? Okay. What's General Mills want? your money, and if you're doing your job, you're going to exercise some controls over that. Maybe you have an occasion where you indulge them, but your job is to recognize that General Mills is trying to sell them something. You go to the next aisle, and you don't realize that some other company is trying to sell you something, and you put it in the basket uh, without thinking about it, and I'm just using that as an illustration, but that's true of whatever you're watching on TV. Sometimes I think the worst movies are Disney movies because we all assume, or a lot of people assume, well, these are family-friendly until you analyze what it is they're teaching and what they're saying about the Christian faith. That God is at best irrelevant and oftentimes a lot worse than that. So we could go on. But yes, all those things are, are a form of companions. Maybe it's a little different issue there are certainly influences that we should be aware of and thoughtful about. So.
0: Thank you. That's good. Okay, we've got a few minutes left, so this might be our last one. Um, the question goes like this. In my experience, those who use the phrase stand on our shoulders and go higher and seek to save their children from a particular set of sins or temptations expect then that their children won't have to face difficulty or temptation or sin. How do we apply this idea while recognizing that even individuals raised in faithful families in the church are still going to face difficulty and need sanctification?
1: Right. I'd say two things. All, almost all metaphors and analogies break down. So the, the, the analogy of standing on the shoulders of the previous generation is very limited in what it's saying, and it can mean different things. What it doesn't mean is that if we do everything right, that our kids don't have to study or think or go through some of the things that we went through. I think I think there are a lot of disappointed, idealistic parents who, kind of, in their early days, had these ideals and thought, you know, if we get all the, the boxes checked, uh, we're going to, at the end of this conveyor <laughs> belt, we're going to produce kids who, who uh, then don't have to go through all these struggles we went through. Now, hopefully, here's, what, here's the different picture of what I'm getting at. But if you've been through a lot of those things, you should know better how to equip them and prepare them so that when they do face those challenges, they have more tools in their toolbox, if I change metaphors or pictures, and that those tools are sharp. So that when those tests and trials come, they're equipped. That's what the church is to do, is to equip the saints for service. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how it's going to show up. It'll, it'll come in a different form than it came for you anyway. But if you've given them the equipment and the tools, they're better equipped. They have a firmer foundation. I'm going to mix a bunch of metaphors here. Uh, they're, in, 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 they're healthier. They're stronger. They're in a better place, starting place. So if you've taught them about child rearing, both by example and by instruction, then when they have children, they're not starting at ground zero, having to run out and buy ten books and read them real quick and figure out how to raise kids. Or they're not just shooting from the hip. They have a foundation. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've been in a community where they've seen it happen. They've seen the failures. They've seen the successes. They should be starting at a place better than you started. That's what I mean by standing on the shoulders before not... And, and R.L. Dabney talks about this. Everybody uh, has to make things their own. So I, I'm, this is common. I'm, I, families, I've been at my church 18 years, so they are young people who've grown up. I've known them, almost, some of them, since they were born. But here they come, they're in college, or they're now in a relationship, and I get the phone call, Pastor, what do we believe about baptism? I baptized you, you know, when you were born. and And... I'm glad they're calling. But all of a sudden, they've met somebody, a friend at school who's asking them questions, and they haven't thought about it. They've just grown up in it. It's it's background to them. It's just in there. And now all of a sudden, it has to become theirs. What what can I read? What can I do? I've got some questions. Can I meet with you? That's great. So in that sense, even though we've given them a lot, and it's in there, it's uh, like ragu. It's in there. It's just some of everything. Now there's a point where God's going to make it theirs, going to test them to see if they will own it. So the test has to come. It doesn't just automatically happen.
0: Thank you very much. In the valley, how do you discern between hard circumstances that are necessary for your growth versus circumstances you should try to change or get away from? For example... Maybe something not related to work, to, to the work of spreading the gospel or life as a Christian in the world, but rather just in your vocation, such as long hours, stress, cetera.
1: i cetera. I, I would think of the advice that Paul gives slaves. If, uh, if you're a slave and you can change your circumstances lawfully, do so. If you can get another job, apply for another job. If you need to go to a better church, if you need to you know, move, there, there are, if you can do this, and I, I use the word lawfully, I just say biblically. And there are other things that come into play and we don't have time. If I were counseling with someone, I would want to ask questions about why and are you, you know, why is this a problem, you know, to be sure. Maybe, maybe what God's doing, if it's a situation at work, is that this person might need to learn how to be a better employee rather than running somewhere else and being a bad employee somewhere else. So I, I need to know more, but if it's just on the face of it, uh, you're in a bad situation. If you can change it, change it, and if you can't, what does he say? Then essentially learn contentment. Then you have to say, well, I can't change, so what is, what is my obligation now? My obligation now is to be faithful where I am, even though I don't like it, even though it's unpleasant. Uh, this is where God's put me. I can't do anything about it lawfully And so now my job is to get as happy as I can get, be the best slave I can be, uh, and honor the Lord in this work.
0: Thank you. All right, I like this next question because it's uh, regarding something we've been talking about as a congregation. Regarding maturity in community, how do we as a church create a context for that? Is Sunday alone adequate, even a long Sunday, or small group studies? Other recommendations for authentic community circumstances where we can substantially shape one another?
1: Um, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer here. Obviously, worship is central to what we do. Certain large church things like fellowship meals or events like this where we come together, we sacrifice to do it. There's no doubt a lot of labor that goes into whether a fellowship meal or this. It's hard work, uh, clean up. Uh, scheduling, planning, uh, there's those kinds of things, and then just getting up and coming. Look, I, I admire you for enduring me for this many hours. That's uh, that's no small task, and I don't say that lightly. It, it is hard work. Uh, it takes discipline to do those kinds of things. But there's a, a thousand things that go on in church that matter beyond that, and if all you do are the, are the events and you don't have... Uh, hospitality in your homes, or what I call front porch time, Um, if you sit on the front porch or the back porch or at a coffee shop or wherever, and you do what we often call small talk with a group of church members and friends, and you hear their stories, and you ask things like, tell me your story. How did you meet as a couple? Or where have you lived? Or what churches have you been to? Tell me your, take 10 minutes and tell me your theological journey. Or Let's, one day we're just a bunch of guys out there talking about our camping trips and funny things that happened. and uh, You know how much you learn about people in those settings? How valuable that is? And it's little by little doing those little things. Here we are back to the little things adding up to big things that we get to know one another. So I learn who I can trust and who's wise and who's not and who's... Thoughtful and who's perhaps not as thoughtful. I learn all kinds of things, and you learn things about me in those casual settings. So I think it's a blend of both large and small, formal and informal. It is our life. I always say the church is not a slice of the pie. It is the pie, and everything else is a slice of that. You are the body of Christ 24-7. And when you start to think of yourself that way, whether you're at your house or here or somewhere else, you're always connected to everyone else. So the more you can do, that thing I mentioned about taking the five minutes on Sunday when church is over and talking to somebody you hadn't talked to, huge. Praying with somebody, we started on Wednesday nights. We have a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. For We started breaking up into small groups. Sometimes I just find one other person to pray with. We just spread out in the sanctuary Get on our knees, pray for each other. Sometimes it's groups of four, sometimes more old, young. Pray with somebody you had never prayed with before. I remember doing this, the first time I did this with a group of young people, a girl came up to me after and she said, you know, I've never prayed with my brother. And we just prayed for each other. So, I suspect, I suspect there are people in this room you've never prayed with. There's a great way to build community.
0: Amen. You've equated maturity with godliness, holiness. Can an unbeliever be mature? Are all unbelievers by definition immature?
1: Um, Well, maturity is a big word that has different definitions. Um, um, We use words in a lot of different ways. If I said, "Is, is John a student? I might say, well, yeah, he's enrolled in the class but he's also flunking, so in another sense, he's not a student. So he is a student, he's not a student. Uh, He is a husband, but he's not a good husband, so not acting like a husband. Uh, There's lots of things in life like that, that we use language in in different ways. So yes, unbelievers have a worldly wisdom. There's certainly a lot of smart unbelievers, Uh, and so uh, depend on what we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about farming, Uh, We may have a guy that is an unbeliever but can really grow great tomatoes, you know. Uh, He's got a lot of wisdom when it comes to farming. So wisdom is an awfully big topic. We kind of were focused in on what it means to be Christ-like, which is the ultimate maturity, to be like Christ. An unbeliever can't do that.
0: Um. Thank you. Jesus grew in favor with God and men. How do we grow in favor with men without making it an idol? Well, if we're always
1: seeking first the kingdom, so you you get I have this conversation come up. You just got your first job, you know, working at uh, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or Chick-fil-A or something. What is your main thing to do as a Christian? That's what I said earlier. Show up on time, work hard, be cheerful. Uh, help your fellow employees, tell your boss, ask him, what can I do to help? Stay late if you need to. You be the best employee you can be. Don't worry about what you say, except guard your mouth. Don't join in foolish talk. Do that kind of thing. Ask the question again. There was another piece to that I wanted to address. Um,
0: Jesus grew in favor with God and men. How do we grow in favor with men without making it an idol?
1: All right, so when you do what I was talking about, you're making deposits. I built a house 12 years ago, and I had, at the time, I had a little time, and I like woodworking. I hired two guys who were good carpenters. They had worldly wisdom. They were not believers. One of them was a Jewish guy who was also an atheist, Um, and I knew their work, and I hired them. They knew I was a pastor, but for three months, I worked every day side by side with them doing carpentry work. I was friendly, gracious, never entered into any kind of nasty talk or stuff, and they guarded themselves. And after about three months, they started asking me questions about the faith. And within another month, we were reading Mere Christianity at lunchtime together. You've got to make the front-end investment in people by being a hard worker, faithful, diligent. They see that, right? You see it. Let me ask you, you have seen people do things that you didn't know, they didn't know you saw them, right? Right? And every time you see that person, if it was a bad thing they were doing, and you overheard them or saw them, and they don't know that you overheard or saw them, you remember it, don't you? The opposite's true also. you ever seen an act of kindness or grace or service that maybe they didn't know that you saw, but you saw it and you remember? Guess what? I have a saying where I live, the eyes of Texas are upon you. That's a saying in Texas. Well, the eyes of Missouri are upon you. There are people watching you all the time. What they see is probably more important than what you say. You need both, but you need what you do first. Faithful in little things. Assume you're being watched all the time.
0: How do we counsel friends going through trials in a way that gives comfort and hears them, bears their burdens, while reminding and challenging them with God's Word? First thing you do is you love them, you show sympathy,
1: you're a fellow traveler, sinner, you've been through things, depending on the nature of the trial, if it's a trial of their making because of something they've done wrong, you still come alongside and show them that you care for them, that you want to help them get through this, and you can pray with them, you can uh, just sit with them, you can cry with them, you can be sad with them, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, and if you've made the investments in them like I talked about, you can say... Because they may ask you for advice and say, can I shoot straight with you? Can I tell you the truth? Because I've found that, for example, when I read my Bible, there are a lot of things in the Bible I don't like, but I need. Loving somebody is giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. So which one do you want? (laughs) you want me to tell you what you want to hear or you want to tell me what I think you need to hear? And you do it in a friendly way, in a winsome way, and then hopefully they say, no, tell me what I need. And say, well, you know what? I'm totally sympathetic with how hard it is to turn the other cheek. But here's what the Bible says, and I think in this case, if you'll do that, if you'll go back to him and ask for forgiveness for what you did, he'll probably forgive you. And I know God will. Is there something I could do to help? So again, being winsome, that's what the gospel is about, uh, not giving somebody a lecture. You're not anybody's judge. Let God do all the judging. Okay? You, uh, you be the extender of his grace and truth.
0: Okay, Um, I'm going to try to edit this one a little bit on the fly. Um, I work with many colorful talking guys. That doesn't bother me. They also have bad pictures everywhere. I know where they are. I look away. They watch things they shouldn't. And their goal is to corrupt me. That's what they say their goal is. And I tell them that my goal is to influence them. Um, for Christ. Should I stay working there with the bad people to be a light, or am I too close to the red line For when the wind blows? It might blow me down. Should I get a different job with better influences?
1: I think that depends on a, a true self-assessment of your strength and maturity in Christ. If you're resolved uh, to be a faithful Christian in the midst of that, I don't see a reason to change. Um, I remember, I don't, I don't normally like to tell these stories, but it comes to Mind. Right before I got married, and we got married when I was 19, we were 19. But I worked for a paint crew. <laughs> My dad was in the contracting business, and I worked for a subcontractor. We painted houses, and I was the low man on the totem pole. Um, and I worked with a crew of about four other men, and they, it was the same kind of deal. They were foul. They constantly were trying to provoke me. They knew I was a believer, uh, and After doing this for three summers in a row, I started in high school. Every summer I worked with them. The last day I worked there, I think it was the week before we got married, um, we were having lunch, and the the foreman of the job, he said, I've got something I want to say. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, he 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 just gave me grief every day. And he broke down crying in front of all the other men. He said, I used to go home at night and I felt like the devil himself I don't know why I did what I did to you. I wanted to see if I could make you break now I'm not saying that to boast here it was the grace of God for me, but my point, I was I was resolved to be a believer in that situation. I had no idea what God was doing in him that's my point. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know what else is going on in their life. You don't know what's going to happen next week in their life. God does. And if he's put you there and you can be faithful to Christ, he may very well use you in a way you can't imagine in the lives of other people. You may think they're not paying attention or they're not watching. Think of how many people were watching Jesus as he interacted with the Pharisees. Who was the real audience there? It's The people standing around watching. What's Jesus going to do? How's he going to react? There's your opportunity. But if, if you're tempted and you find, well, I did really good for two weeks and then I told a dirty joke along with the rest of them and now I've ruined my... I can't I can't seem to withstand, then maybe you do need to withdraw and go somewhere else for a while until you are ready.
0: Very good. All right, I got you, I think in your second lecture, made reference to 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 and following. And I got two questions that Okay. With a lot of overlap. I'm just going to read both of okay. them, and then you can figure out how you want to answer it. How do you approach a move-out child, a child who's moved out, who I think is being sexually immoral, yet claiming Christ? And the heading is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. The second question, what are the steps that should be taken if there is a brother or sister in the church who has been sexually immoral, Parentheses, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. And what does repentance and restoration look like? Okay.
1: First one, you got a child that's moved out. Again, that could be a lot of different circumstances that might make me adjust this answer. But I would say the fundamental answer, um, I wrote a chapter in a book called Under You and Your Children that Canon Press published called What Do You Do When you Failed? And we often as parents feel like that. How do we pick up the pieces? How do we keep the door open? How do we do this without capitulating, uh, without compromising our commitment to Christ? You speak the truth. You speak the truth in love. With uh, uh, Van VanTill's motto was, Gentle in manner, resolute in purpose. Honey, I love you. I think you're in a really bad situation and you're not being faithful to God, and it breaks my heart. I love you more than anything in the world. And you know what's right and what's wrong. And I'm going to ask you to tell the truth. You know that you can't be a follower of Jesus while you're at the same time doing what he told you not to do. So, I love you too much to look the other way. And so I'm speaking to you, not because I hate you, but because I love you. Can we talk about this? And again, there's a lot more. I'd have to know the particulars, the history, Maybe there may be some things you need to repent of. I don't know. Maybe you need to say, you know, I think I've been too harsh in the past and not been uh, somebody you could talk to without me losing my temper or giving you a lecture. Could we start over? Could we have a conversation? I, you know, there's a lot. I, again, without knowing in particular, it's hard to say, but I think you got my idea. Again, without compromising, this is the truth, but I love you. I'm not going to beat you over the head with this. God will bring it to light. Everything will look different tomorrow and next week. If they're in sin, it will become evident. Okay? You want to win them back. So anyway, what was the, the second part? Was Oh, if somebody has been immoral, how do we minister to them in effect?
0: Rest, what Restore does repent, them? Restoration
1: look like? Well, again, I think obviously what we'd expect in any kind of repentance would be confession of sin. What is confession? It's just agreeing with what God's already said about us. Yes, I sinned. Yes, I did what God said not to do. That was wrong. God was right. I was wrong. And if I sinned against someone else, I need to ask their forgiveness. If it involves their family, um, it goes beyond that one person, perhaps a meeting there to ask for forgiveness. Then, of course, repentance always has to have fruit to go with it. So what are you going to do to keep this from happening again? And how are you going to make restoration? And without knowing the particulars, it's, again, hard to answer with specifics. If somebody wants to approach me later with particulars, I'd be happy to talk about that. But um, that's all I know to tell you. You know, you can't unscramble an egg. Uh, If if, uh, you have a beautiful piece of furniture and you're four-year-old drives a 16-penny nail through the top of the table and you pull it out and you take it to be repaired and the guy's really good at furniture repair and he matches the putty and he fills the hole and all the finish. It'll look pretty good. Now, guess where your eyes go every time you look at that table. Um, If you get 50 of those nail holes in the top, it gets really hard. Okay, so... Sin has consequences. It does damage. Can it be forgiven? Yeah. You know what? All sin is theft. All forgiveness is I'll pay the bill. You stole this from me or from God or from someone else. I will pay for it. That's grace. Not unmerited favor, ill-deserved favor. You burned my house down. And I not only rebuilt the house and paid for it, I invited you over for dinner. Now, that's forgiveness. So you don't undo the damage. The the illustration I give, if if a man and a woman are sexually immoral and she gets pregnant and she has a baby, he can repent, she can repent, they can forgive each other. There's still a baby. There should be a baby. Is that baby a blessing or a curse? What can God do? You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. So it's both. We do bad things, but in God's grace, he can overcome everything through the blood of Christ. It has a, All the tragedies in Christ turn out to be comedies. He can save the day. He's the hero.
0: Okay, getting near the end here. This is sort of a two-part. I'm going to do it separately, though. Have you any recommendations for book reading, especially for young adults, regarding these issues of maturity?
1: I don't have a particular book on the subject of maturity, per se. There's a number of good books on pursuit of discipleship in Christ, anything that's going to cause you to be a stronger more mature Christian, I would come back and recommend Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. It's a, it, it deals with a broad range of issues that are confronting our young people today. And I think it's important to have clear thinking about this is a Christian way of thinking about the world and about myself, and this is the other, the other way, other ways that are contrary to this, because what the world wants to do is blur all this and say it's confusing um so that would be one I'd highly recommend for anybody teenage and up uh, to deal with some of the current things that, because you have back to what I said about perspective, if you don't have a right perspective, if you're not looking at the world and yourself the way God does, you can't begin to grow. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You might not be there yet, but at least if you know where you are, I mean, we were coming to see you. We more than once you know, looked at the map to see where we were and to see where we were going to make sure we were on the right path. And I think there's any number of books like that, but that would be one that I would pick out that would be really helpful. The other one I mentioned was Jerry Bridges' Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, very count sound theology. By the way, let's, let's talk about that a minute. If I sat down with somebody to present them, let's say, with the five points of Calvinism, there's a select number of people that would find that attractive, just the theology of it, the system, the beauty of its organization and reliance and unity. That's true. But you know, if I start talking to people about the love of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God and how that gets you through a crisis, isn't that lovely? Isn't that attractive? Isn't that winsome? Uh, And so teaching one another, teaching ourselves how to think that way so that we become, we begin to look at the world the way God looks at the world and the way he wants us to look at it. So I don't know that I really answered your question. It would probably be a long list of books that I could point to, but uh, there's not one that I'd say, well, that's that's the one to read on Christian maturity.
0: Well, the second part of the question was, and there's a right answer and a wrong answer to this, would you please... Would you please publish, I assume in book form, the sessions of wisdom you just shared with us? Sessions <laughs> on wisdom you shared with us. What I please. Um, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much sure. for these talks. They're good, challenging for all of us. So,